Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, what a fascinating period of time it has been in Canadian politics. A new finance minister and now a pro-rogue government. Where do we go from here? How has the National Democratic Convention been playing out in the United States? And Donald Trump's impression of it all. And the anxiety around back to school. Should the teacher unions be talking to the chief medical officer of health instead of the premier? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. I was trying to avoid my chores using prorogation. No luck. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! There you go. I think the kids are too, too politically uh, astute right now. I don't know. I think it's grown up in the house. I don't know. I was using all these big words like the Prime Minister and trying to get out of stuff. I... All right, good afternoon. It is 1210. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air. Feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Uh, you could do so. Oh, it's going to be one of those days, I can tell, Will. Uh, you could do so a couple of ways. Uh, the Facebook and Twitter, you know, the social media. You can find the uh, commentary there, podcast edition. Also, uh, the written version today, uh, out of the ordinary, not on the regular day of Thursday, but hey, we had lots to say. You'll find that at 900CHML.com, the written version of the commentary as well. Trying to figure out what the heck uh, the Prime Minister is doing, proroguing government during the middle of a pandemic. My goodness, have we not got bigger fish to fry here? The kids are heading back to school in September. Uh, anyway, we'll talk about that coming up a little later on uh, as well. And as, as I mentioned, feel free. We would love to uh, have you be a part of it. Send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right, it has been a very busy 24 hours in Canadian politics. We've seen uh, uh, former Finance Minister Bill Morneau uh, step aside, uh, citing differences in fiscal policy, although uh, certainly rumors flying that the two of them, uh, tension between the two for a long period of time. Uh, again, the opposition saying this is more to do with uh, mumming the WE uh, investigations. Uh, the federal government prorogued this session, now uh, not returning until September 23rd, as I mentioned with a throne speech and either uh, the other parties are in or they're out. Let's bring in Michael Barrett, Shadow Minister for Ethics for the Conservative Party of Canada and is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thanks for having me on. Uh, how do you think that this, Michael, is resonating with Canadians today? Is this too much into the weeds? Uh, they're busy trying to figure out how they're going to get their kids to school in September. Uh, how do you think this is resonating with the average Canadian? Well, Canadians expect that uh, you know their parliamentarians will um, you know will do their jobs, and uh, it's the obligation of every member uh, outside of the executive, everyone who's not in cabinet, to make sure that you know the rules are followed. And it's of course the job of the opposition to hold the government to account. So when we move through normal parliamentary committee hearings, um, I don't think the expectation is that uh, you know Canadians tape uh, record CPAC and then watch it when they get home from work. But when we're dealing with an issue like this, where we have an organization who paid members of the prime minister's family half a million dollars, and then, uh, you know, uh, Justin Trudeau's government gives that, gives that same organization half a billion dollars, um, people have questions. People want answers to that. And so 
that that story, the, the backdrop to that, of course, is that Justin Trudeau has been found to have broken the conflict of interest uh, laws twice already. And now he's up to bat a third time uh, under investigation. So, uh, you know, we're hearing from folks that, that they're engaged with um, with wanting you know more information, wanting the truth. And so uh, I think people are disappointed. Uh, I'm I, I'm not surprised, but I certainly am disappointed that that now we have uh, you know the prime minister who's who's locked the committee doors, locked the commons, and said we'll come back at the end of September. And um, you know, and he's of course hoping that that all will be forgotten. So for those who were paying attention, that hopefully they've they've moved on to other things. And uh, of course, that's not what we're going to do as uh, as the official opposition because um, uh, we have a job to do. What happens after September 23rd? Obviously, it's pretty hard to comment on a throne speech that you haven't heard yet. Um, but that being said, it seems that the, 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 the government is playing its hand here and then throwing it up and saying either you're in or you're out. Uh, pretty much trying to dictate when the election is called, which is usually left to the opposition during a, a minority parliament. That being said, what happens after September 23rd? Do you take the bait or... Uh, do you wait and, and let all of these committees play out again, start up again like the Wee scandal and, and start cranking this out? Well, I think that, you know, part of the uh, part of the plan that you know, Justin Trudeau had yesterday when he prorogued is that he would that there would be questions about whether we would the opposition would support uh, the uh, the government, whether there would be an election. Are we ready? Uh, the 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 problem that happens you know if there's an election uh following the throne the speech from the throne is the committee's now been it's been shut it'll have been shut for several weeks and canadians won't have all of the answers about uh this scandal so all of the testimony that that we had uh, called for all of the documents that have yet to be received because there is there is one set of 5,000 page set that has been received but there are other documents including details of Trudeau family members speaking fees going back to 2008 which will not be uh, delivered to uh, to members that information doesn't come out if there's an election so uh, so uh, as much as I am uh, of course a very dissatisfied with the government uh, no I don't have confidence in in Justin Trudeau as our prime minister uh, however uh, we're going to have to take a look at, at this at this speech from the throne when it comes forward. We're going to have to talk to our new leader when when the Conservatives we we select our new leader on Sunday night, and then we'll have to make a decision because we do have to. There is a balance here in, in getting answers for Canadians and and uh, that accountability that we're uh, that that we are obligated to exercise uh, with respect to this government's performance. Uh, another committee that was has fallen by the wayside is the Canada-China Committee, which uh, we've had people on who have testified in regard to the relationship with, with the country and, and what's going on in Hong Kong, with two Michaels, the Huawei CFO. I understand that uh, John McCallum was actually supposed to testify uh, coming up uh, in the future. We certainly know what a powder keg that was. Uh, for the Trudeau government way back when. Uh, will this continue? Will all of these committees continue where they left off? Or will they be put aside while we decide whether there's an election or not? Well, and, and so and this is the question. But what's happened when Parliament is prorogued, all of the committee membership, all of the committees uh, effectively cease to exist. And so new the committees will have to be reconstituted. Members will have to be added. And then any study that they were previously undertaking, the committee then needs to uh, vote in favor of and support uh, commencing a, uh, an identical study, effectively. Uh, but it has to start from scratch. And so Canada-China was doing important work. You know, there was a, the Human Rights Subcommittee 
you know, w- was hearing testimony um, about uh, egregious acts um, against uh, Uyghur women in, in China. And the prorogation prevents that that work from going forward. It, it prevents the work of the Canada-China Committee and all of the other committees, the, the, um, the Health Committee, which was, um, you know, dealing with the government's response to COVID-19. None of this work continues. And so, well, I'm not a member or was not a member of those committees. My colleagues have been working uh, incredibly hard uh, for Canadians um, and we're prepared to continue to do so. And, you know, with respect to, to what I've been uh, working with and working closely with people like uh, Pierre Polyev, who's our shadow minister for finance, getting answers on this scandal, uh, all of that, all of that uh, in the committee context uh, came to an end yesterday. But we're going to have to work outside of uh, the committee rooms um, to, to dig for more answers. All right, last question here, Michael. Uh, playing devil's advocate here, uh, the Liberals said this is all about a reset. Obviously, we're in very uh, uh, precarious times with this global pandemic. Uh, things are a lot different now. We need to to uh, regroup, reset. Uh, what's wrong with that? Um, so the Prime Minister has called for Parliament to resume on September 23rd, but prorogued it um, on uh, on August 18th. If he, If this was about a reset, he could have, and to deliver a new speech, he could have done that on September 22nd and then delivered the speech from the throne the next day. All that proroguing Parliament uh, this week has done is shut down the investigations into his own government. Is uh, there any, does there seem to be any other logical reason for doing this other than to stop that investigation? I mean, from a COVID-19, from a finance, from a health perspective, is there, does there seem to be any other reason for doing this other than to shut down the WE investigations? No, no, flatly, this is a cover-up. The, the government had selected four days that the House of Commons would meet um, in, a, in a modified fashion with all the health and safety requirements for a committee of the whole, uh, for an opportunity for, for members of all parties to question ministers. That next meeting, one of four meetings, was supposed to happen next Wednesday. That's, that's cancelled. So this is um, a, a Hail Mary pass, an 11th hour play to... Um, to cover up, uh, you know, uh, corruption at the highest levels of government, and and it's a it's a disservice to all Canadians, and it does tremendous damage to to confidence in in our democratic institutions. Michael Barrett has been with us, Shadow Minister for Ethics, Conservative Party of Canada. Michael, thank you for the time, much appreciated. Be well. Yeah, you too. Take care. Let's bring in John Delacourt, Vice President Hill Knowlton, and he is with us now. John, thank you for the time. Hope you're go- uh, doing well. I'm doing really well, but uh, I'm sure like uh, yourself, I'm also uh, trying to process the last 48 hours. A lot of changes here in Ottawa. So uh, lots to talk about. What's the buzz? I mean, what, you know, uh, let's start with, let's start from the most immediate and then work backwards. I guess that's the easiest. That with uh, prorogation, surprised that this is happening during the height of a pandemic. Well, I think um, I, I, my, at least what I've been able to observe over the last, I'd say, four to five months of crisis response is that um, when this government returned to Parliament after the last election, um, you know, it put forth uh, a, an agenda that was bold, but also um, consensus building in, it, in, in its uh, approach because we're in a minority government. But uh, what has occurred over the last four to five months has been I think nothing short of a an effort to to manage a crisis, uh, and so priorities shift 
and I would say shift dramatically. Uh, the stimulus measures that have rolled out, as we know, have, uh, have created a multi-billion dollar uh, deficit uh, that we have to deal with. These are, this is a seismic shift in priorities and planning. And when you have a seismic shift in priorities and planning, uh, you've got to come out with, uh, with, I think, a policy document that is really uh, that addresses this. And I think that that's the approach this government has taken. It requires something as 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 I think it's all encompassing with as a broad a perspective as possible as a speech, because and to be clear, what a, what a speech actually functions, uh, its function, how it functions within Parliament is to outline what will be the legislative agenda for, for the, uh, this government. And of course, that has to address uh, these extraordinary times that we're in. Uh, I, I don't think, think anybody. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, I, I think that's that 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 is the rationale here. I don't think anybody would disagree that this is a a pandemic, global pandemic around the world that has affected everybody and certainly does need a reset at certain times. Uh, Again, the government was asked for that a while or sorry, a while ago, and and they were very hesitant to release any sort of uh, fiscal statement of such. So, again, I I don't think anybody disagrees that coming out of this thing that uh, we certainly do need to hit a reset button and have a plan for recovery. I think what's happening, though, our Canadians are questioning why you would do this uh, at this point during the pandemic, especially during the month of September, when I would say anxiety is at its peak during this uh, pandemic and as the kids are heading back to school. Is this the sort of thing that we should be putting on the shoulders of Canadians as we're heading back to school? Uh, yeah, two things. I think it's I think it's important to realize what is what is still moving forward and moving forward um, with the kind of momentum that uh, all of the fiscal stimulus measures have rolled out over the last uh, four months. One of them is uh, cabinet committee. They're, they are still meeting and still addressing and still and uh, I think we can expect uh, them to be reacting and announcing ways in which this government is reacting uh, from from now until when the parliament returns. Um, what what is not happening right now and um, is uh, the Finance Committee uh, and uh, uh, Human Resources Committee, those committees that were, uh, that were bringing witnesses in um, for, for meetings just with regard to their perspectives on what, how the government was responding to this. Um, the pre-budget submission period um, continues apace. All of those submissions are being considered, and that committee will convene once Parliament returns. And to be clear, Parliament is returning. Um, this is not like a press pause and then wait for Parliament to return uh, for three or four months uh, uh, d- down the road. This is press pause, and then Parliament returns right after the speech. So, um so the pause period here is merely about uh, putting the kind of priorities and planning together that addresses a- a- adequately the, the, the challenges that I think we're, we're going to be facing. Uh, again, I, I think that's very well uh, politically explained, but at the end of the day, it's not answering the question of why do this now in the month of September when the parents' concern and anxiety centers around a global pandemic 
and everybody's child returning to school. Uh, again, as opposition has suggested, this could have easily done the, been done the day before and then one day and then continue on. Uh, again, it, it just seems very mm-hmm. odd at the timing of all of this. And again, in regard to fi- uh, finance minister, former finance minister Bill Morneau, I mean, the discussions mm-hmm. about the tensions between he and the prime minister have been going on for weeks now, except they were all in around uh, the WE scandals. And, and would the mm-hmm. finance minister be the fall guy for the WE scandals for the prime minister? Now, all of a sudden mm-hmm. this week, the conversation is not about whether the finance minister will resign in regard to WE. It's because now there's a policy shift. And now uh, we're hearing rumors that the finance minister is questioning uh, uh, what the prime minister is doing financially as far as moving forward with a recovery plan and such. So it seems that the narrative around the finance minister has greatly changed in the last couple of days. And again, it, it doesn't come back to why do this now? Why not wait till we get through September in this very anxious time? It seems that the only reason that they are doing this is to shut down the, the WE scandal uh, committee meetings, which unfortunately shut down the others, including the Canada-China committee, which is working on the ongoing relationships uh, with China, trying to get the two Michaels free, and, and everything that's going around the Huawei CFO case. So all of that mm-hmm. has been shut down. And again, to me, there, other than than for political reasons to uh, you know, to change the channel, I, I don't see why they're doing this now during this very anxious time for parents during a pandemic. For sure. Um, I, I think, you know, to your point about anxiety and to your point about the return to school, um, these are issues I think that uh, concern everybody, of course. Um, but, uh, but you know, the basic fact of the matter is uh, that, you know, the federal government uh, is not tasked with education. Um, this is at the provincial level. And um, I think as, as uh, Premier Ford uh, remarked on uh, with, with regard to Christopher Freeland's uh, new position, um, the, the relations between the provinces and the federal government have never been better. And uh, I think what Premier Ford sees in Christopher Freeland is someone who is there for him to answer his calls, uh, to answer his texts. The level of responsiveness, I think, has, uh, has I think, that, that and her ability to get on the same page with the premier, I think, is indicative of um, the kind of relations that are that hopefully will address um, those concerns um, at, at, at the provincial level. Where you know, once again, uh, the um, the education minister is is, uh, is going to have to address this anxiety. So, so no mistake, uh, make no mistake. I think the the federal government, of course, has an abiding interest in the direction things are going to go in September for kids coming back to school. Um, but the effective uh, avenue for that is uh, in, in those conversations, those crucial conversations with uh, with the, the federal ministers of education and, of course, um, with the premiers themselves. And um, no, I, I can't think of anybody better place to have those conversations uh, than um, Minister Freeland. And uh, now I think... Uh, You'll you'll have Dominic LeBlanc play a key role in those conversations going forward. Um, so that's the first first piece to this. I, I guess the second piece on what is you know what this uh, this this period when pause has been pressed really means. Um, I think it's also notable that um, you know the Canada China Committee was not actually. Um, uh, they, they were not meeting um, during during the month of July either, um, 
And the agenda is... Uh, excuse me there. We just had Gloria Fung on a couple of weeks ago, or sorry, a week ago, and she had testified at the committee last week. So I don't know about July, but we're into August, and she just testified. So uh, what does that have to do with anything? Well, it's it's this, that the agenda for that committee has has shifted, um, and I think, uh, and, and rightly so, to address... Um, but what difference does it make if it was shut down in July? It was running in August, and this woman testified and was on the show telling us about it. Well, because uh, two things um, there, what the, what this committee has, has been formed to address is um, the coarsening of relations with China, as we know. Uh, and there are two two main issues there, of course, um, one um, which revolves around uh, the trial of Meng Wanzhou. And, and, and the second, of course, is the uh, the human rights challenges that we've seen uh, that, that uh, I think the conservative opposition has raised and raised effectively here. Um, um, I, I can tell you that Everything that I have heard about uh, when the subcommittee on agenda has met on this uh, on this committee's uh, work going forward, um, there has been a shift of priorities towards um, the challenges that uh, uh, with regard to what the the Chinese government, uh, how how they're addressing. John, with all due respect, I I don't want to get sidetracked in changing the channel to this. Again, we had Gloria Fung on the show earlier in the week talking about the Canada China uh committee so uh yeah i don't want to get lost in the sauce here obviously it was running uh, a week or so ago do you think the government do you think the canadians are going to look at this government as this being a selfish move that this is designed to take our eyes off what's going on in a very anxious time do you th- are, 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 is the government not worried that that people will view this as being self-serving because again the timing is just horrible well i i, I would say this um if Parliament, uh, if committee was not, uh, if the cabinet committee was, was not meeting, if the, um, the prime minister was not, and the minister of finance was not um, um, ad- addressing this uh, with the rollout of stimulus measures that continue apace, uh, to be clear. Like this government is not moving forward on, uh, is not pressing pause on how they're responding to the, the challenges that the, the pandemic, I think, raises. Um, that is No, what this government I, is doing is putting Canadians through a bunch of political BS in the middle of a pandemic. Do you not think this will backfire? Canadians want to see their politicians work together. Canadians have been praising on how all different levels of government, all different political stripes are all working together. Now we could mm-hmm. possibly trigger an election September 23rd by the Prime Minister coming up and saying, do this or do that. So again, is this just not incredibly selfish on their part, thinking of themselves more than Canadians? I mean, I don't know how you can justify that. And, and I don't think you're having a, an easy time justifying it either. Well, I think it's this. Um, uh, I think uh, the challenges that we're, that we're facing uh, require uh, a reset that actually is going to address it effectively. And you get it with a budget. You get it with a speech from the throne. Those are the ways in which I think you can you can really um, set that broad canvas uh, for for what the legislative calendar will hopefully address. And that's and, and that that just seems to be the only effective way that you're going to address the challenges that we're facing. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is, uh, once again, I I just. I do not see this as a government pressing pause. I see this as a government effectively addressing the challenges that we're, we're about to, I think, over the next year, two years, uh, going to face. 
I don't think anybody disagrees with that, John. I just think it's the timing and the opportunism and the selfishness that's going to uh, resonate with Canadians here. Because, again, they're busy trying to get their kids back to school. And now we're jumping through political hula hoops after seeing government work together for so long. And you expressed that with the relationship between Ford and Freeland. So, again, considering mm-hmm. where we've been, where we've come in a post-COVID-19 world, I think this seems opportunistic. And, and again, I think we all need to hit the reset button. Absolutely. I just don't know if that's during the month of September when all the kids are heading back to school. John, we appreciate your time as always. John Delacorte, Vice President Hill Knowlton. Thanks for the time and be well, John. You too, and thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, All right, let's head down uh, south of the border. The Democratic National Convention has been going on. Uh, We all know that uh, Joe Biden is the guy, but however, last night it was made official. Let's bring in Reggie Giacchini, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News, who is in Wilmington, Delaware. Uh, uh-oh, I hear we just lost Reggie, who is in uh, Wellington, Delaware, uh, following all of this. And uh, as soon as we reconnect with uh, Reggie, we'll, uh, we'll get his comments. Uh, obviously, the... Okay, we got Reggie now. Reggie Cicchini is with us uh, in Wilmington, Delaware. Reggie, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Finding good cell phone service can be hard sometimes when the entire world media is here, but we're good. Now, uh, other than the entire world media, who else is there? What is this like in the middle of a pandemic? What's a convention like? Well, a convention uh, is empty. Look, most of the media has been confined out into parking lots or in their hotel rooms because there's limited space inside the actual arena. This is not the conventions we've seen of the past where there are 10 and 20,000 people inside with political jockeying trying to get in and around and with the media trying to go and uh, you know deal with every pundit they can find. Uh, it's really an isolated uh, event right now. We're seeing pictures from what it's going to look like inside tonight when Kamala Harris makes her acceptance speech for VP, uh, and it's sparse. There's a couple of seats. Uh, there's a couple of podiums uh, up on stage and a couple of uh, uh, signs that show each an individual state uh, where there may be a representative. This is a very different kind of convention, but this virtual uh, convention appears to be working. They're getting big ratings through the evening hours. So, uh, as we mentioned, Joe Biden already pretty much confirmed it's now official. Uh, Kamala Harris, the same thing tonight. Does any of this matter? What is missing during this convention other than the partying? Well, I mean, look, the, the big thing that's missing is just the ability for people to come up and talk about the reasons that they want to put their weight behind the candidate or behind the nominee. That's something we're not seeing right now because it's a condensed format. We're seeing uh, speeches that are only lasting 90 seconds or a minute. Uh, you know, Bill Clinton spoke last night for about four and a half minutes, uh, a big difference from when he spoke uh, in, in conventions past, where sometimes he would speak on the plus side of 40 minutes. So we're seeing things condensed down. That's what we're missing right now. But the enthusiasm for the party still exists. You're seeing that in these online videos and testimonials uh, that are being played throughout the night uh, and throughout the party as well, as they look at Joe Biden now as a transitional uh, candidate and now nominee who will take the Democratic Party that once was and push it into the future. Uh, You talked about people watching this, uh, and and obviously the normal process isn't there, and now it is a much more confined presentation, a much more slick presentation, because it has the time to be edited and it cannot be live. Is that a more effective way to get your message out, as opposed to this long, drawn-out process, which we see every, every election? 
Yeah, I mean, look, some of it is live and some of it is taped. And the taped bits, uh, uh, they're working for the Democrats because, look, as this airs for the first time uh, on TV or online or however somebody's watching it, it's almost immediately able to go viral. And these moments can continue to be talked about as the campaign is playing out. I think this is something that you're going to see uh, campaigns and parties look at going forward. Is this more inclusionary aspect uh, of bringing this to a digital sphere? This isn't the the political parties of the 70s, 80s and 90s into the 2000s now uh, when the Internet and when communication and especially in this pandemic, when Zoom and Skype calls really have been at the forefront of how we communicate with each other, doing things online, being able to put some time into it really does make a difference. uh, And you're able to keep talking about it. How much of this is chatter about actual policy as opposed to character? Uh, Every campaign, every party has a slogan, has a message, you know, try to keep it tight and bright, whether it's making America great again, no new taxes, whatever the line is. What are you getting as far as a, a consistent message from the Democrats during this convention? Well, I mean, look, the Democrats still have their own uh, internal battles that they're dealing with, uh, with this mix of moderate people throughout the middle, like the Clintons, like the Bidens, like the Obamas, uh, and this far progressive side of the party, like the the Elizabeth Warrens and the Bernie Sanders and the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortezes. But what they're doing right now is they're putting aside their ideological differences, uh, you know, as they work through this electoral process uh, to throw their weight behind Joe Biden and come together to not only make this a referendum on Donald Trump's three and a half years in office and realistically on how he's handled crises regarding uh, uh, racial injustices and the the pandemic uh, over the last several months. Uh, They're using it as a way to say, look, we can do this as a referendum on Trump and we can do this to kind of uh, progress the policies forward of the Democratic Party. Tonight, you're going to hear from people on stage, from the political world, uh, talking about uh, uh, platforms that they want to look at in a Biden presidency, whether it's about immigration or whether it's about elevating women to more uh, prominent positions or whether it's about uh, climate change. It's a combination of what they're trying to do here with their messaging. Uh, You talked about crisis uh, reaction and such, uh, specifically to COVID-19 and the president's reaction. That's uh, what the Democrats are are playing. Is there any new plan here for Donald Trump? Does he have any new way to combat this other than the same rhetoric that we've been hearing forever? It it doesn't seem that things are changing or getting too much better as far as the COVID-19 situation. Uh, That could continue right through the next couple of months into the election. Election. Has, has he changed his stance, his plan in any way, or is he just doing the same thing? No, I mean, look, the president ha- has said about the COVID crisis and especially about death, it is what it is, something that was pushed back on by uh, former First Lady Michelle Obama earlier this week at the convention. But the president himself, he really is just pressing on uh, as if it's a business as usual situation. You know, we're expecting to hear from him tonight uh, at five o'clock, attempting again to take back some of that spotlight that's on the Democrats right now, uh, which is what we've seen with the president as he does this kind of whirlwind trip uh, to some swing states uh, that he's he's not doing so well in when it comes to polling. Uh, but realistically, the president continues to be more focused on the economy uh, and, and kind of pushing back on uh, or at least doubling down on conspiracy theories, whether it's about uh, political candidates in the Democratic Party or whether it's about uh, the upcoming election uh, and potential voter fraud with mail-in balloting. He really has put the coronavirus on the back burner. And this comes as death tolls in the United States now surpass 1,000, 1,100, 1,200, 1,300 for weeks on end now, uh, realistically with no end in sight.
Uh, traditionally, when one party is having its convention and going through this process, does the other person, uh, the other party, stand down for a while while all this is going on, or does it, do we see continuation making of noise during the process to try to distract from the other's message? Yeah, I mean, look, politics are politics, and it always continues no matter what the situation is. But during a, a convention, you typically see the other party step down a little bit. Uh, you know, you don't see the president traveling around. You don't see kind of campaign stumping happening during uh, the other party's convention. Uh, but that's not what the president is doing right now, and understandably, because he's falling in the polls. There are national polls uh, kind of on an aggregate level that put Joe Biden still between 8 and 10 points ahead of Donald Trump. And those numbers are concerning for the Trump campaign. So they're trying to get him out uh, as frequently as he can. But you'll also notice the president is pushing back on Democrats who are intending to hold uh, some congressional hearings later on this week and early next week into the Postal Service scandal. And the president is now uh, criticizing them, saying that that's taking away the spotlight from his campaign and his convention. So this really is a president who wants it one way, but doesn't want to have it the other way. Has Donald Trump had a win recently? Uh, Well, I mean, the president, uh, if you're talking to him in terms of COVID-19 and listening to how he talks about it, he'll say uh, that the the administration has had a win when it comes to dealing with testing and when it comes to uh, dealing with the crisis, despite the fact that he faces pushback on that claim, not only from Democrats, but from health experts around the world. But the last time the president had a significant uh, legislative win uh, has been, you know, months and months. You know, criminal justice reform was the last thing the president really kind of signed into law and was able to advance. But he hasn't in the last three years been able to get those big key legislative wins uh, that he ran on in 2016, whether or not it was a full border wall on the south or, you know, a blockage for certain uh, immigration rules uh, or even being able to overturn uh, Obamacare. This really has been uh, a struggle for Donald Trump when it comes to wins over the last three and a half years. Reggie, it doesn't seem that Donald Trump will be able to knock COVID-19 out of, uh, you know, the top of the news cycle. It doesn't seem that much will change in the next two months in regard to the virus, especially in the United States. Is he just what's going to happen running into the into the election? Do you think that uh, uh, what do you think his plan is going to be? How does he pull this out? Well, I mean, it, it really is going to be uh, troublesome for for the Trump campaign. Uh, and if you're listening to some of the experts that say that unless the virus is brought under control uh, in the very near future, you could be looking at something like 100 or 150,000 new cases per day, uh, which is a, just a, a mind blowing uh, number to think about. And it would be difficult, or at least it it may be difficult for the Trump campaign to be able to push forward and not pay attention uh, to those devastating numbers, because at the end of the day, uh, one case is one case, but that one case may impact a Republican voter who may vote for Donald Trump and not acknowledging the severity of the situation could have a real impact uh, on polling uh, turnout and results uh, in November uh, uh, come voting day. So, I mean, as this situation either stays steady or potentially gets worse, uh, the outcome for President Trump could potentially uh, start to grow more grim as the days go by. You talked about the issues surrounding the Postal Service. Uh, how's that resonating with Americans uh, and, and their inability or ability to vote by mail? Well, I mean, look, there has been scrutiny over the uh, Postmaster General who was uh, appointed by the president uh, just a couple of months ago and his uh, abilities to try and uh, uh, dismantle parts of the Postal Service, whether or not it's removing mailboxes or turning off uh, uh, sorting systems. 
We heard from Louis DeJoy yesterday saying that he's going to put a pause on those operational changes uh, to allow for kind of uh, regular mail service to continue, despite the fact that there's already been some changes and structural changes inside the agency. Uh, but he's going to face some serious scrutiny later on this week and next week when he sits uh, before both a House committee and a Senate committee uh, who are really going to, to take him to task about uh, the situation uh, with the Postal Service and this growing fear that the election results could potentially be compromised uh, simply because uh, of an inability now for people who may fear going out and casting a ballot in person, not having their ballot collected or counted in time. How do they justify removing mailboxes, Reggie? Well, I mean, look, this is something that happens on a yearly basis with the Postal Service, where they may take a mailbox that's not right. used frequently and take it out of service. But, you know, doing it on such a high level at the same time that you're taking away uh, postal sorting machines makes it more likely that right. the delay in mail collection is only going to get worse. And I think that's where you're going to hear Democrats really push back uh, on whatever the response is from the Postmaster General this week. All right. What about the Republican, bench, uh, Republican convention? What can we expect from that next week? It really is uh, kind of an open question right now. We haven't heard from the Republican committee what they plan to do, how much of this uh, convention is potentially going to be virtual or in person. We know that a number of leading Republicans in Congress, especially those that are on the older side, have already said that they won't take part in any kind of live event. But we don't know uh, exactly what's going to go on. We've heard that the president may talk two, three, possibly four times uh, uh, over the course of that four day convention. But really, if, if you know, Republicans may be looking at the success of the DNC being virtual and to try to incorporate that uh, into their plans for next week. But really, it really is uh, an unknown how this is going to go forward. We also don't know the list of, of potential celebrities or musical acts, uh, acts rather, uh, or even uh, uh, politicians that are going to be lining up to, to stand behind Donald Trump. It's also different, though. There really isn't a second contender that they're going to be nominating uh, at this event. It's not like a Biden and Bernie Sanders situation. It really is Donald Trump. So we're not sure what this is going to look like next week. Having seen the Democratic convention first, will the Republicans do something differently uh, for whatever reason to make a, a greater impact or, or such? Have they learned anything from what the Democrats have done or had to go through? I mean, it, yeah, I mean, look, it's possible they may try to incorporate some of this, uh, uh, you know, uh, video ability that the Trump campaign pushes out when it comes to their advertising or what we see the Trump campaign or at least the Trump administration push out uh, when it comes to the president when he's uh, traveling to a city. They, they quickly put together something uh, and tweet it out. We could see those kind of elements uh, involved. Uh, but realistically, again, since we don't even know what, what kind of lineup there's going to be, it's unclear uh, how this is going to be carried out. We also know that this is only going to be taking place logistically throughout parts of North Carolina. Most of the Florida uh, uh, party part of this uh, was canceled because of the COVID-19 scare. So it really is unclear what the convention is going to look like and how they're going to be able to stretch it out over four days. Will we try to see them cram a pile of people into an arena or a stadium? We all know prior to this that Donald Trump loves having the crowds. We saw in, in one scenario, uh, once the virus uh, got hold, that the people didn't show up, that there were less people there than, than originally thought. How is he going to uh, speak before uh, no one other than cameras uh, without the large crowds uh, in attendance? How does that change things for him? 
Well, I mean, look, the president has said that he's going to make his acceptance speech and potentially any other speech that he makes as well uh, from the lawn of the White House and intends to bring some people out there uh, noting the size of the lawn and he'll be able to socially distance them. But that runs into problems as well, because the White House is technically not supposed to be used for any kind of politicking uh, during a campaign. So the president would run afoul of the Hatch Act uh, by having any kind of campaign staffer or political staffer on scene with him. So there are a whole bunch of logistical problems and questions uh, to how the president's going to be able to handle giving any kind of speech, especially if there are people with him uh, at the White House. But again, considering part of this is taking place uh, in North Carolina, we're not sure if there's going to be any kind of crowd there because North Carolina law states you have to have a small crowd uh, if you're gathering in any kind of setting. So this really does throw a wrench into the plans for the president to have a lot of people packed in to watch this convention. Does this change the debates in any way, Reggie? Well, I mean, it potentially could. We know that if these debates and when these debates go forth, at least the two men will be on stage with a moderator. But it means that there won't be any kind of crowd uh, to be able to, uh, you know, elevate the attitude or the atmosphere inside of the room. And there won't be any crowd for either of the two men on stage to be able to play off of. That could make things different. It could be a much more uh, uh, kind of somber and intimate uh, experience between uh, just the three people that will be in the room. But again, debates are one of those things that are still being worked out. We're waiting to find out when they're going to take place, where they're going to take place. And the president, who's been pushing for additional debates, uh, will have to see if those are, are, are going to take place. And in fact, whether uh, the president will be able to walk around the stage as he did behind Hillary Clinton last time, or if he'll have to stay within his box and keep six feet away. Yeah, I mean, look, there are rules that the president consistently uh, uh, pushes back on when it comes to how to deal with COVID-19. And obviously, there will be social distancing and potential mask requirements for coming in and out uh, of the place where the debate happens. Uh, you know, it, it, it will be one of those contrasts that will see uh, the differences between how the Democratic Party and, and the Republican Party deal with an ongoing crisis. And again, considering there will only be two men on stage, you'll really be able to see what the leaders of both parties uh, intend to do going forward when it comes to dealing with this crisis. Reggie Giacchini has been with us, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News down in Wilmington, Delaware, following uh, Joe Biden and the Democratic National Convention. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 530 and 6 for more on all of this. Reggie, thank you so much. Be well and enjoy uh, Delaware. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, a medical doctor, health policy expert. A new report says that health information on Facebook is getting billions of views during the, uh, during the pandemic. Of course, as uh, many have said, since the beginning of this pandemic, it is uh, obviously essential that you know where you're getting your information from so uh, you can uh, get the most accurate information on how to react to all of this. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Dr. Ahmad Khalid is with us, a health policy expert. Ahmad, thank you so much for the time. Hope you're doing well. Same to you, Scott. Thank you for having me. Uh, before we get to the Facebook issues and social media and such, your thoughts about where we are today, 102 new cases here in Ontario. We seem to be right around that 100 uh, mark, either going up or down, uh, depending on the situation. Your thoughts of where we are? I think we're doing well. I think the numbers are fluctuating over time is a very normal progression of how the, the, the virus will progress. I think the big concern right now is what we're all looking at is the school reopening in the fall and what we should be expecting to happen then in our contingency plans. But we do have early reports that uh, testing has been at full capacity. People are able to get tested in a fast period of time and get the results in a very efficient manner. So those are all good news and we just need to continue doing what we're doing right now. So how confident are you with students going back in September? 
Uh, I'm not very confident. I think we're having reports from around the world where schools are having to reopen and have to close back again with cases rising. So the, what I'm trying to say here, Scott, is that we don't know what we expect in the future with the schools reopening. I think all schools across the province right now are looking to contingency plans of what will happen if a student or a staff member tests positive or suspected test positive with COVID-19. My big advice today is to download the app from the government about that tracks COVID-19 and, and tells you if you've been exposed. Uh, and that's one way to get ahead of this and to really make sure that uh, we have contingency plans in place that are safe and effective and can get us through the academic term. Obviously, uh, with the chief medical officer of health and, and those across the province, nobody, no leaders is able to promise that, that there won't be outbreaks, that there, uh, that, that there won't be uh, some sort of reaction to this, but the risks are low. Do we have to move forward with this in order to see what will happen? I think if you speak to any parent out there right now, and many of them are our listeners today, they would tell you they want their children back to school because they notice that the children are missing out on social skill development. So opening schools is a necessity. We have to figure out a way to open up schools again. Uh, The issue remains from a health policy perspective is how do you do that safely? How do you ensure that, you know, if we do have a case of COVID-19, how do we address that? So it's not a matter of when we will get it. We will have an outbreak of COVID-19 at some point at some school. The question really here is, can we move into action fast enough to address that exposure? Can we protect the rest of the children, the staff that might be exposed to this? What do we have in terms of supporting our parents so that they can educate the children at home for the time period that the children will go into isolation? So all those questions are being debated right now and figured out. But I think that that's just nature of the pandemic, that we have to address those big issues now. Government has said that they're going to keep the class sizes contained. In other words, uh, once you're in a class, that's your class. You're not going to be running from place to place to place. You're going to keep these little cohorts uh, intact. Uh, Is that a good way to go about this? Other countries around the world are actually doing the same strategy. So we're getting reports from countries who who are a little bit ahead in terms of opening up their schools that are doing a similar thing. And a simple way to think about this, Scott, is a bubble within a bubble. So, you right. know, we've talked about bubbles before outside of school settings. This is really uh, just another way of saying we're creating bubbles within the school setting itself. So if you belong to a certain class, whether it's grade three or four, you only hang out with those students and your faculty members are assigned to that class. And that's just to uh, control contact tracing. So it is an effective method. Uh, but the big question here is, can we really limit our children's ability to leave the classroom or that bubble? Uh, and, you know, some other countries are asking their the students to wear two masks a day. But we know that children have a very hard time of adhering to that uh, that rule, right? Like, how many kids are, are going to be able to put on a mask at all during the school time? And how many of them are really going to stick to the two masks a day? So I think all options are at the table right now, and it's a matter of figuring out what best works for our own context. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of concern, a lot of anxiety, um, a lot of politics coming into play. Health experts have given this plan approval, uh, not only in this province, but very similar plans all the way across the country. There doesn't seem to be anybody that's doing more or, uh, or even less for that matter. Um, what are we not doing that others are? Is there anything we're not doing that others are? I don't think there's a perfect formula. So a lot of conversations happening now is like, 
well, what is the best case scenario? Well, the best case scenario is that we don't have COVID-19. That's not the reality. We have COVID-19. We know how serious it is. We still don't have a vaccine or an effective treatment towards it. So therefore, we're, we're living with the current reality and trying to find the best option forward. So the reason why all health policy experts and the majority have agreed to this plan of opening up schools is because we realize that the benefits outweigh the risks. And by that, I mean is that we understand that the social interaction of children, that the, the education development of our children in schools is a necessity and that we need to figure out a way to move forward. It's similar, Scott, the approach we did with reopening uh, back uh, the economy slowly. You know, we didn't, we didn't reopen the economy thinking that COVID-19 was over. We've reopened things in stages knowing very well that we might have an, uh, an outbreak, that we might have an increase in the number of cases. It's sort of that slow and progressive uh, move towards living in this new reality of this pandemic. Uh, obviously, we have to do whatever we can to make this work and and, and keep the kids and, and the staff safe, uh, safe and such. Uh, again, uh, it seems to be that we are using a model that is being used around the world and across the country. Uh, still, we have lots of anxiety and lots of fear. Uh, it's obviously healthy to have debate, so we recognize both sides of this discussion, but is that causing extra fear and anxiety as this slowly approaches? Well, it goes back to your earlier point in the, in the, in the show, which is about misinformation. I think what's happening is that you know, some people, some parents might be looking at misinformation about how the school's going to reopen. So this is why it's going to be so important for the government and the school board to really clearly communicate with the parents, what is their strategy? What is their contingency plan? What will they? What are they planning to happen if a child or a staff member is exposed to COVID-19? I think the more we can send clear information to parents and the general public, the more reassured they are about a way forward. Because you know, when misinformation gets put out there, that's when anxiety anxiety happens. People are not sure who they trust anymore. So we really need to build accountability within the system by being transparent in the information we're putting forward. Should the province stress that the chief medical officer and, and others that are uh, obviously having this debate have approved this and that, you know, we're doing the best that we can with what we have and the medical advice that is there? Should they be Absolutely. selling that message more? Yes, I think we need we do need to reinforce that message more that health policy experts and our chief health medical officer has approved it. But at the end of the day, Scott, I mean, if you speak to any parent out there, the decision lies with them, I believe. Sure. I think that the parent decides. You know, you can present them the information, you can make them informed about what the evidence is there, but it, it essentially it becomes a decision for the parent to make about how much risk they want to take. Because there is some risk involved, right? Like, it would be very naive to say that mm-hmm. by sending your child to school, back to school, there is no risks at all. Of course there is a risk. You just need to be informed about what are ways to protect yourself and your child. All right, let's talk about uh, social media and where people are getting their information uh, from. Uh, apparently getting billions of views, misinformation is uh, on social media. Misleading health content has racked up an estimated 3.8 billion views on Facebook over the past year, uh, peaking during the pandemic. Uh, The report found that the content from 10 super spreader sites sharing health misinformation had almost four times as many Facebook views in April of 2020 as equivalent content from the site's uh, of the 10 leading health institutions, including the World Health, the World health uh, Organization and the Centers for uh, Disease Control and Prevention. Uh, what are your thoughts when you hear that? 
it's not very surprising to me because this is something that we've been raising the alarm on for a very long time now, since the creation of sort of the internet and social media platforms, that the spread of misinformation is increasing by the day. I mean, you and I can just go through our own Facebook accounts and notice some friends of ours who would share posts are very far from the truth or very far from the research evidence. And so it becomes a bigger question about who's accountable to that. Do we ask our government to put forward regulation to prevent uh, organizations like Facebook from spreading misinformation by users? Or do we really just raise awareness on accountability of the users themselves? So you and I and the individual citizens out there to really look at our own social media platforms and decide for ourselves where we go to get that information. So I think both, both options are on the table and, and governments across the world are actually tackling this issue. This is not just a Canada specific problem, it is a global problem. The, the spread of misinformation is happening so fast. Uh, and it's one thing to happen when it comes to politics or political campaigns like we've seen in the past. You know, we can draw an example from the U.S. recent elections with misinformation being spread out. But it's a whole different ballgame, Scott, when we talk about people's health here. So when there's misinformation about COVID-19 that can endanger population health, that's a very, very serious matter. Will people just go to hear the information they want to hear or see anyway? Yes, so studies and research have shown that over and over again. People tend to, you know, go to the sources that they sort of confirm their own conspiracy theories or confirm what they've already been thinking before. So I agree with you. But I think that there is also this notion that people are more likely to access verified information if we present it to them in a way that they can understand it easily, right? Like you go to your favorite source of information for many reasons. One of them is, yes, you want to confirm what you already think about, but also because you like the way they present that information to you. So whether that information is correct or invalid, that's a different story. But the format and how we present correct and reliable information is so exceptionally important. And I think this is why, as governments, we need to invest a lot of money and resources into creating mechanisms or organizations that help in getting the correct information to the public in a simple and clear manner. Is it a um, is is it a lack of trust within these institutions now, within uh, you know typical medical institutions and where we would get our information from, or traditional media would get their information from? Is it a lack of trust in in, in what people are saying, or is it just convenience, laziness? This is what's in front of them, so this is where they're going to go. Well, people, I mean, when you look at where people access information, the majority of people access their information nowadays in social media. And the question is, why is it through social media? It's because it's accessible. It's on your phone. It's easy. You mm-hmm. log into your Instagram, your Facebook. Now we're seeing TikTok being another platform. Uh, and people are able to access this information fast. But the question is there, who's verifying that information? It is exceptionally easy for anybody to log into their Facebook account or any of their other social media platforms and post whatever article they feel like they, is, is verified. So that's, that's where the question has become a big problem. And that's why people like Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook, is under a lot of scrutiny because they're asking and pushing him to be, you know, to have better algorithms in place that can sort of filter out the fake news and fake information so that the public can't share things that are not verified. But I will say that that's a big ask, you know, that we're in, a, in an era now where it is so easy to publish so much information. And there is a, a, the plethora of information out there on anything under the sun. So trying to control what is correct and incorrect 
is a very, very difficult task that I, I will take multi-government, so more than one country collaborating together to tackle this big, big health policy issue. Uh, you, you know, Ahmad, we have seen what has happened. You brought up the U.S. What has happened in the United States due to misinformation? We have seen that they are low, or they're slow uh, to the starting line for all of this. I mean, I, I was watching U.S. media last night, and my goodness, it's like watching Canadian media four months ago. They are so far behind their discovery in all of this. They're so far behind uh where we are it's it's just it's it's astounding so when we see what has happened there and how canadians are now viewing this and and saying my goodness where were you people three four five six months ago are we learning from that is that helping us uh, gauge this information as we wade through it well i mean you bring up an excellent point i think part of the reasons why in canada we've been very good about getting ahead of it is because earlier on since the beginning of the pandemic uh, our governments were aligned in the messaging, and by that I mean that the federal government with our Canada Public Health Agency were very much sending out the same signal. So we looked for Dr. Theresa Tam as sort of our guiding information. We quoted many of her things to do in, on your show and other shows where we said this is the message from the government. In the U.S., it plays out differently. There is a disproportionate amount of information. You know, you have the White House with Donald Trump's administration giving out very different messages than CDC or the big leaders like the Fauci there. So that mis, uh, misalignment causes confusion and lack of trust in the public. And so the public is frantic in the U.S. trying to find out who can they really trust when there's no alignment of messaging. So that wasn't the case in Canada. I could say that, you know, Dr. Theresa Tam really conveyed what the government's message was, what the appropriate medical guidelines were, and the whole country looked to her and to the government for guidance on how to move forward in this pandemic because we trusted that they were relying on evidence, that they weren't just putting out information that wasn't valid. And at times when we questioned the evidence, the good example for me is face masks. You know, we went back and forward on it. The government quickly, when the evidence yeah. was clear on the effectiveness of face masks, said, no, we need to adopt it now. That's exactly what I was thinking, Ahmad, was, you know, look at the uh, debate around face masks and, and such, like several months ago. And, and obviously, we learned, we, we educated ourselves, and then we made the decision and, and, and changed our minds. It seems that Canadians uh, are more willing to do that, or is it misinformation that's that's obviously sending our american friends uh you know to the wrong side of this discussion it's for sure misinformation that's being shared more widely in the u.s but also lack of governance right so lack of effective leadership that can sort of lead the country towards a direction towards more evidence for us when we had the debate about face masks and yes we went back and forward on it but when the research evidence came out clear uh, and I remember that time very distinctively when it came out mm -hmm. clear that face masks are effective. The government quickly jumped on that and said, OK, we're mandating it. Now everybody needs to wear face masks. And to be fair for us Canadians, we adopted that quite quickly. It's very rare now to find a, a big number of people that will go against uh, the idea of wearing face masks. That's not the case in the U.S. because the messaging has been so different between different governance agencies. Okay, Ahmad, so for the user out there that is looking for information, what advice do you have for them as a doctor? I love that question, and my advice to them is something that I've been working on for a very long time, is to find out verified information. Please, first and foremost, you go to your own uh, public health agency website. Those agencies really spend a lot of time and effort ensuring the population's safety is a top priority. So for us here in Canada, Canada's public health agency is a great resource. 
and they do an incredible job of trying to simplify that information with infographics and videos. So definitely seek out that account. And if you want something on your phone as a social media, they've also upped their campaign. So Twitter account of Dr. Teresa Tam is an excellent resource to go to, to follow her on Twitter. And on Facebook, they do the same. So those are great mechanisms and sources of information for us here in Canada. And globally, the World Health Organization really has put a lot of effort in making sure to combat misinformation. Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, medical doctor and health policy expert, talking about misinformation on Facebook and, again, the ongoing anxiety surrounding back to school. Ahmad, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Same to you, Scott. Have a good day. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.